Isn't it amazing how kids can say, I don't know? Whenever you're asking them the, the important questions like, did you do this? I, I don't know. How did that happen? I, I don't know. Now, do they know? Of course they know, yeah. <laughs> All the veterans are like, yes. And you can tell by how you're looking at them. I, I can remember... Growing up, um, my brother and I, I, I have an older brother, and um, we like to play baseball out back. I hesitate to tell this story with my parents in the room. Um, <laughs> um, but we'd play baseball out back with a wiffle ball, and we had a little course set up and um, with, with first, second, and third base. And first base was over by the, the flower garden on the right. Second base was out in the middle of the grass, just beyond the patio. Third base was one of the posts on the patio, which sometimes presented some difficulty. And um, home was back back by the neighbor's garage. And my dad and mom really like avocados. And and you're probably wondering where I'm going with this. But they, they kept getting avocado trees and wanting them to grow and produce fruit. And the place that dad would choose to put the avocado tree was usually right around second base. That's about where it went. And I can remember one day that we were playing, and I'm sure it was my brother that did this. <laughs> I don't remember who actually did it. But, but one of us hits the ball, and it's going back, and the other's going back to get the ball, and we're running back, and we get, you know, you have to run past second base to get a fly ball. Just ran right through the new, newly planted avocado tree. <laughs> Snap. And so being the good sons that we were and wanting to fix the problem, you bring it back up and put the stake back in. <laughs> Weirdest thing after that, it didn't bear fruit. It didn't grow anymore. And dad a little bit later is like, so what happened to the avocado tree? Because then a little wind came up and went, boom. <laughs> wow, dad, that's a strong wind. <laughs> I know, we'll talk afterwards. I, I am so in trouble. <laughs> Statute of limitations, thank you. <laughs> and, and you know, we're like, I don't know. And, and, and that was what was humorous about it is it was in a long line of avocado trees that didn't work there. Another one was planted and, and we waited like 10 years and it never bore fruit and it got torn out and the one that was crushed got torn out and, and, then finally they got one that worked after Ken and I moved out, come to think of it. <laughs> and then it had um, fruit. But I was thinking about this morning as, as Jesus has been talking about fruit and, and looking at the temple for fruit and, and saying there's no fruit here. There's the appearance of fruit, but no, no actual fruit. And then we looked at the fig tree and Pastor Andrew did a great job last week of challenging us with the fig tree and that again, God is judging that there is no fruit, but then He shares what fruit looks like. As He was talking about faith in God and a, a, a prayer in a God that prayer in a God that can do the impossible and a forgiving spirit. And now, as we pick up the scene, we we find Jesus as as He's coming into Jerusalem. And last week He had talked to the disciples at the fig tree, and today it's still Tuesday morning in Passion Week, and He comes into Jerusalem and faces the religious leaders who are a tad bit upset about what happened in the temple the day before. And the issue that he begins to deal with is why no fruit. 
He's been condemning them that there's no fruit. But now that they bring it up again, He's going to say, why no fruit? Why has there not been any faith? Why has there not been an active prayer life? Why has there not been prayer for the nations? And Jesus, as He always does, just cuts right through it. You know, sometimes we, in, in, in our lives, we get to a place where like, I'm, I'm just not seeing God at work. You ever get to that place? Everything's just going along, and I'm not sure if He's answering prayer. I'm not sure if He's doing anything at all. I'm not sure if He's showing up. And we're like, why? Why? Sometimes we work and we work and we work and we just don't see any fruit in our personal walks with God, in, in external discipleship, both sharing the Gospel and, and helping others come along. So as we study the passage today, it's directed at, at the Sanhedrin. It's directed at the religious leaders. But it's directed at us. As we can take things and say, okay, how does that apply to me? What can I relate with there? So turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. And we'll just poke our heads into the scene where the religious leaders confront Jesus and are angry at Jesus. And Jesus turns it into a teachable moment of why no fruit. Why no fruit. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. So we look at Two, two incidents with a story, the confrontation, and then Jesus' parable afterward. The big idea here, that, that the theme that runs through all of this, is receptive hearts are necessary for fruitful lives. Receptive hearts are necessary for fruitful work. And we're going to see that come out in every one of these verses and in every interaction. So let's start reading at verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, the they being Jesus and the disciples. He's just taught at the fig tree and they're walking the rest of the two miles into Jerusalem down the Mount of Olives. And they came to Jerusalem and as He was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to Him. And, and that group is significant because the chief priests, the, the, all that had been in that position and were currently in that position, the scribes, they were the, the, the religious lawyers that knew those scriptures and knew how to, how to pin it to you. Um, the Pharisees were part of that group. And then the elders, some of the other teachers, these three people made up the Sanhedrin, a group of 71 that was the ruling body of the time. And, and get the picture here. It, the day before, Jesus has turned over all their tables that the high priest set up so he can make some money. And he had turned them over and driven them out of the temple. And a little bit of conjecture here, but I would bet that the religious leaders of the time got together that night and said, we have a problem. We have a problem. We need to deal with it. And they came up with a plan of attack for how to deal with Jesus. Because the picture we get here is the next morning, Jesus and his disciples come into the temple, and it's almost like the Sanhedrin are off to the side waiting. Say, okay. When he gets here, when he gets here, this is what we're going to do. And they know that they can't just arrest him and kill him right then because the crowd loves Jesus. And they have a problem if they make the crowd angry. And so they come up with this plan of how to trap him and how to, to grab him in a way that will get the crowd on their side. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them. 
A couple of points you can fill in on your notes as we explore these verses. The first point is an unreceptive heart is committed to self. An unreceptive heart is committed to self. When we come to, to why no fruit and why are we unreceptive, what do we hold on to that keeps God from using us? What we're going to see here is a confrontation between Jesus and the self-centered leaders of the time that are worried about their, themselves more than anything else. And so point, point A there, we are blind to instruction when we are committed to protecting ourselves. We are blind to instruction when we are committed to protecting ourselves. In that verse, verse 28, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Here's what they're saying. They're saying, we're the authority here. You are challenging our authority. And so we're going to attack you for that. So Jesus comes in and they're saying, okay, who said you could do this? What gives you the right to go against us and our position and our status and our power? What they're doing is protecting themselves. They're protecting their position. They're protecting their power, their authority, their way of life. And so rather than the day before being this moment where Jesus teaches them the incredible spiritual principle of fruit in the temple and reaching out to the nations... They miss all that because their primary concern is how can I protect my own position? And we wonder why there was no fruit. We cannot bear fruit for Christ. We cannot be receptive to His teaching when we are more concerned about protecting ourselves than all else. They were absorbed in themselves and they're looking for a way to get rid of the teacher rather than learn from the teacher. And so they challenge him on the basis of authority. Now keep in mind, they've seen his authority. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal. They've seen so many different exhibitions of his authority that they could not have missed it. And so now, it's not so much that they fail to see his authority, but they're unwilling to admit. Because admitting to his authority means lessening theirs. And so self becomes more important than worshiping God. Challenged by that. As we look at that, the first challenge we have is, okay, how do I protect myself more than worship God? How do I protect myself more than being receptive to what God wants to teach me? Great question to, to ask or to, to evaluate ourselves is what is my first reaction when I'm corrected? What is my first reaction when I'm corrected? It's defensive usually, isn't it? How dare they? Excuse me. Sounds a lot like the religious leaders, doesn't it? Their first reaction when Jesus corrects them is what authority do you have? You're not the mommy. Sorry. <laughs> A little close to home. But what is our, our first reaction to being corrected? By a godly brother or sister. Is it defensiveness? Or is it humility? Honestly asking if they have a point. Honestly asking, does God's Word teach this? Is this something I need to work on? 
See, so many times we're defensive because we're protecting ourselves. We don't want to lose face with each other. We don't want to lose authority. And so we start to blame the other person or we get mad at all kinds of different circumstances surrounding it. Instead, our first response to criticism and correction should always be, do they biblically have a point? Is God trying to teach me something through them? But that's hard. And it's a difference between a receptive heart that becomes a fruitful life and a defensive, self-absorbed life that withers away to nothing from the source. Another aspect we see, point B there in verse 28, is we are blind to instruction when we love to give correction and advice. We are blind to instruction when we love to give correction and advice. The, the, the religious leaders, they were defensive, but what do they do? They come at Jesus and give correction back. And, and so many times when we get into modes where we just like to correct people, where we like to tell people what they're doing wrong and, and help them see the truth and see the way, which we sometimes do when we're driving, you know, helping other drivers understand what they've done wrong. Wish we had little signs on the back of our car that we could just tell them instead of cut them off or whatever. But um, when we get into this mindset that we have to be the ones correcting and giving advice, then we really are coming back to a commitment to self rather than a commitment to being receptive to God's teaching. And it's so easy to do. Giving advice is nice. It's fun. It makes us feel good. But do you see where the focus is? makes me feel good. It helps me ignore the things I need to work on. We need to be very careful. I think one of the ways that Satan attacks the church is through critical spirits. Through critical spirits. See, a critical spirit is almost always from a commitment to self. Because it says, I know what's best here. And I have the right to share it. And Satan uses that to drive wedges in his church and challenges in his church. Now that doesn't mean we never come to God's Word and look at things we disagree on. That's not what it means at all, but it's how we do that. And are we disagreeing and bringing things up for God's glory or for my own glory? Is this a personal preference, which is usually the basis of a critical spirit? Or is this a holy truth that is doctrinally sound in God's Word? That we fight for. We fight to the death. Preferences we dare not because that's usually coming from an unreceptive heart. As I was thinking through this point and looking at the Pharisees and how often I relate with them, how often I jump to what someone else is doing wrong before what I do wrong, I I was thinking what a challenge it would be if for a week we all agreed to say, no, nothing critical about each other or anything in the church. What if we did that for a week? Not just to each other, but even in private. Could we do it? Could we do it? What if we went a week without giving anyone advice other than parents to their children? All the children are like, yes! No, 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 no. That is their God-given role and responsibility. 
Could we do it? I mean, think about that for a minute. Could we get to a point where we weren't coming at people with things we disagreed with? We should. We should. I appreciated the discussion and, and the heart of something that's been real popular on the internet this week, a video that came out about does Jesus hate religion? And it's getting millions of hits and I'm hearing it talked about all, in all kinds of circles. It was the topic of, of conversation at the retreat. And, and, and it's interesting to watch if I, if I narrow in on one little story of that. Um, the, the video came out and there's some good things in the video. There's some things that are clearly not biblical in the video. And, a Christian leader, a pastor who has a blog that a lot of people follow, wrote a review on this that listed all the things that were really good about fault, about watching out for false religion and realizing serving Jesus is different from false religion. And had a couple of minor corrections that he, he posted about the video that where it was biblically in error. And it was interesting because then they posted a few days later that the, the gentleman that wrote the poem and wrote the video came back and emailed this pastor. And he had a choice in that email, didn't he? He could say, it was a poem. Hello. I was trying to make some good points. But instead, what he emailed back was, thank you. Thank you, brother. I looked up God's Word, and you're right. You're right. And then the emails went back and forth. And it was a wonderful example of a man that with, with, a, with a humble heart that was open to correction. Even in a situation where there's literally six million hits on YouTube. Which would, would tend to puff up. And two brothers in Christ were able to talk about it and come to terms with what God's Word taught. What a good example of how to get past self, past self, as we need to have receptive hearts. Verses 29 through 33, point C there. We are blind to instruction when we are more concerned about what man thinks than what God thinks. When we're committed to our image. And you might put this with self-protection, but it's slightly different and we see it so clearly in the passage. Let's start reading at verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And so Jesus is using a common tool of debate here, and and he knows they're trying to trap him, and he knows that they're actually trying to, to focus on something different from what he was trying to teach in the temple to avoid conviction of their own heart. So he says, okay, let me ask you a question first. And, and based on your answer, that's what, that's what will depend on whether or not I answer you back. So in verse 30, he says, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And he repeats that again, this imperative. Okay, tell me this. John the Baptist, man or God? What, what was his source of power? Tell me that, and then we'll be able to get down to why I was able to do what I did yesterday in the temple. See, Jesus here is linking the two because remember what John the Baptist said? I point to one who is greater than myself, whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. I baptize with water. He will baptize the Holy Spirit. And so if you accept John the Baptist's testimony, then you have to accept Jesus's. It's brilliant. 
And, and the Pharisees and the leaders of the time, they didn't accept John the Baptist. They killed him. And so Jesus is saying, okay, by what authority did John the Baptist minister in? 31. And they discussed it with one another saying, and so I can see they're all getting together, huddling up, however many of the 71 are there. You know, if, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Hmm. He's got us there. I'm adding in a few things. And then in verse 32, but shall we say from man? Well, then we have another problem. It says they were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they're in a no-win situation. If we say from God, Jesus says, well, then why did you miss it? Why are you attacking me? You know where my authority is from. If we say from man, the people rise up and hate us because they love John the Baptist. They think he was a prophet. And Jesus gets to their heart. Because never once do they say, where was his authority really from? What was right? They're more concerned with, I get in trouble this way, people hate me here. That's their standard of making a decision instead of what is godly and what is not. Do you see the error? And self-centeredness always goes this way instead of this way. So in verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. (laughs) How does that make you look in front of the people? (laughs) Sorry. Um, Just like with the avocado tree, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. The wind. We don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, then I'm not going to tell you. And the, the, the religious leaders here, they are ruling by taking a poll. They are ruling by being more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. You sort of see it in politics right now. Anyone sick of politics already? It, 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 yeah, it's election year. And it is, isn't it amazing how the, the, the message of the candidates changes depending on which state they're candidating in? Now, and hopefully not all, but for many of them, they take polls, right? And in New Hampshire, the big issue was liberty and freedom. And so that's where you saw most of the messages. South Carolina coming up, 60% of South Carolina says they're born-again Christians. So where do you think some of the messages are going? Faith. Faith. We have Arizona coming up next the messages will probably go to the right to bear arms and some other issues there. And and you see candidates, even from state to state, changing their tune enough because what are they trying to do? Trying to win votes from men. They're thinking this way. And sometimes you just want to say, what do you really believe? Just cut through it. What do you really believe? And here, the Sanhedrin has taken a poll. And their poll says, we lose if we say John the Baptist and Jesus are from God, and we lose if we say they're from man. And so we don't know. That happens in politics too. But we cannot live for Christ by taking a poll. 
We cannot live for Christ by trying to figure out which group likes what things. We live for Christ by going to God's Word and says, saying, this is what God's Word teaches. This is what I hold to and no other. And the Pharisees here lie. They lie to get out of being in trouble. I don't know. The result in verse 33 is that Jesus withheld the opportunity from them, the growth opportunity from them. Jesus withheld the growth opportunity from them. Okay, if you won't tell me, if you won't be honest about this, then then the, the discussion is over. And so we see an unreceptive heart is committed to self. And we dare not point our fingers too hard at the Pharisees. We dare not point our fingers too hard at each other. Because the question that this story urges us to ask is, how am I committed to self? How do I protect myself? How am I more concerned about what people think than what God thinks? How am I trying to be over other people so I don't have to deal with my own junk? But then in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, and the two go together because Jesus now tells a parable. And if you remember, the parables were designed so that those with ears would hear. And he's not talking physically, oh, they all have ears, Pastor Ron. No, those with some spiritual insight, those that are seeking God would understand the message. And so this is a way for Jesus to continue to teach on this same topic, but teach the disciples and teach those that were open to hear. And so he starts in verse 1, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Caught all that? Lots of stuff going on there. I think I put a list of the different elements of the parable here. So let's, let's just make sure we know what we're talking about before we read the rest of the parable. Owner of the vineyard is God in this case. Okay, and this would have been a story that any, any Jew would have heard and said, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about Isaiah 5. Where Jesus, where God said, I am the owner of the vineyard and I've planted you as my vineyard. We don't have time this morning, but if you get time, go back and read Isaiah 5 and you, you see almost the same story with a slightly different twist. The owner of the vineyard is God. The vineyard is Israel. God's people. The tenants in this case that Jesus is talking to are the religious leaders of the time. They had a false religion. And he's going to attack them for that. Confront them on that. The servants are the Old Testament prophets. And the beloved son is Jesus. The beloved son is Jesus. So now we have a a basis for understanding the parable. And the difference between this parable and the, the, the story that went before, the confrontation with the religious leaders, is there he's confronting them on self. You're more concerned about self than anything else. Now he brings in some teaching for, for anyone that is receptive of, okay, how are we receptive? What really is the answer? And as we look at this parable, it's not so much about being unreceptive, it's about what God is doing about what God is doing and their receptiveness or unreceptiveness to that. 
And so it's a different picture. And so point number two, a receptive heart is committed to what God is doing. A receptive heart is committed to what God is doing rather than what I want. Letter A there. We bear fruit for God's sake, not ours. We bear fruit for God's sake, not ours. Verses 1 and 2. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, being God, and he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So right from the start, what do you see? God plants his vineyard and he lovingly just sets everything up for it to work. Puts the fence around it so wild animals can't get in. So people can't get in and, and, and take things and, and thieves can't get in. He builds a tower that you can use for storage, but also it's a lookout tower so you can see your field and protect it. He builds a, a pit, and this probably was referring to wine, wine presses that were built into rock. And you had an upper pit where you could stamp the grapes, stomp on the grapes, and then a little trough that went down to a lower pit where the juice would be. Quite a lot of work to put this together. And so Jesus is setting up the story. God has done all the work. It even says that God is the one that planted the vineyard. What did the tenants do? Nothing. Nothing. God did all the work. And in verse 2, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Does the master deserve some of the fruit? Absolutely. He did all the work. It's his land. It's his fruit. He hires some people to watch out for it, to be the tenants. And he comes back and asks for some of the proceeds. This was normal at the time. that They would have understood this because at the time you had landowners that would plant vineyards and they'd hire hands to come in and then part of the rent for being able to do that is you paid back 25 to 50% of your produce. And you paid that back to the landowner. So this was a common thing. And Jesus always does this. He, he brings common things and says, okay, let me teach you with this. What we see out of that is a reminder that the, we bear fruit for God's sake, not ours. Because we don't do any of the work. We are simply tenants here. Everything you have is not yours. Every possession you have, every blessing you have is from God Almighty. And so if it's the Master's and not mine, who has the right to it? The Master. And do you see where he's going with receptiveness? Because an unreceptive heart says, I deserve, I deserve, I get this, this is mine. A receptive heart says, this is the master's. And you know what? If the landlord wants to come and tell me how to fertilize the grapes, that's his right. Our job is to produce a crop, to be stewards, to be faithful with what he's given us. And the key here is we bear fruit for his glory not ours. We live for God for His glory, not ours. Not for what I can get. We serve God for His glory, not for the status I get out of that. And Jesus here sets the scene by saying it's all for Him. We bear fruit for God's sake, for the Master's sake, not our own. Then verses 2 through 8. 
When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they, they being the the tenants, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the master, it comes time for him to collect what he wants, sends the servant, and the servant says, I'm here, I'd like some grapes or some, some wine. And they say, well, actually, we have something else for you. And they beat him over the head a few times, kick him, punch him, send him out. That's the message for the master. What should the master do at this point? What? Get new tenants. Let's deal with this. So let's see if that's what happens. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Okay, two now. Now the time to get rid of them? Get new tenants? And he sent another, and and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. And you see this progression of God coming to Israel. And God coming to the leaders of Israel and saying, I'm looking for fruit. And he's referring to the prophets here. And we know as we look back through the prophets, some of them were beaten. Some of them were torn apart. Some of them were just martyred. And we see a direct correlation with what God was doing with Israel. But see the bigger picture. This isn't so much about God's judgment. That's part of it. But it's about His grace. Because He should have just wiped Israel off the face of the map. But our God loves us and has grace and He pursues and He pursues and He pursues and He pursues. Even when we reject and we reject and we reject. Finally, in verse 6, He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, He sent him to them saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. They see the son coming, probably thinking, if only the son is coming, the master is probably dead, and he's coming to reclaim his his land. So we kill him. It's unclaimed land. We get it. Their focus is, what can I get? Instead of how can I glorify God? And this is a prophecy of what's about to happen to Jesus in three days. Because the religious leaders themselves are going to try him and crucify him. Thinking they've solved their dilemma and they've protected themselves. But as I read that, I see a God who is going to great lengths to pursue a disobedient people. And I praise God for that. Because God has pursued us. And we have been disobedient. And God pursues us and places His grace on us when we don't deserve it. And shows us His love and draws us to Himself. That's worth worshiping. That's worth praising God for. Martin Luther said, If I were God, 
and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched things to pieces. Speaking of how great God's love is. Point number two there. Look deeper at events to see God's grace and love. Look deeper at events to see God's grace and love. How do we build a receptive heart? See how God is pursuing us. Let his pursuit change our heart. Wives, does something happen in your heart when you know your husbands are pursuing you? Oh, yeah. It helps you be more receptive, doesn't it? Men, you want your wives to be receptive to you? Pursue them. Love them. Show them grace. Show them love. And see what happens. Well, the same is true with God, except He has already pursued us. He has pursued us perfectly. And the issue isn't that He's not pursuing us, it's that that we're blind to it. He has been here. We have the prophets in God's Word. We have salvation because He died on the cross. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. God is with us. He is pursuing us. We just have to wake up and recognize it. And that's so helpful in times when we're like, I am so lost and don't know where God is. He's pursuing you. That's where He is. I don't know what to do. I, I, I don't see God at work. Have you seen His love? Have you seen His grace? Have you experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? That's how we build a receptive heart. By letting God build it through His pursuit instead of willing it in ourselves. Last week, week, week ago, we were at Disneyland and we're walking along, a big group of us, and have our kids. And we get to a point to the ride we were going to go on and, and we all stopped and Alicia kept going. We didn't know that. And, um, oh man, I'm going to cry. <laughs> we look around and we see everybody except my daughter. And it's a crowded day at Disneyland. And, and I know many parents have gone through that, but that feeling is n- unlike any other feeling I have ever had. And, and I, I get on my, well, I, I get my phone because Susie stays there. She's looking around there. And I go running where we've been. I actually don't know that she's gone further. I just know she's not with us anymore. And I, I was holding my boys, and I'm like, okay, so we hand them off. And I'm running back. Where is she? And, and that look of, that, that feeling of pursuing and going through crowds, and all I see is people, and I don't see my daughter. That is the kind of pursuit that God comes after us with. Except He knows where we are, and He knows we're lost, and He is pursuing us so that we will respond to His love and His grace. We did find her, so... She, she had just gone a little bit further and Susie found her and then I, I didn't have my phone out so she was just watching me run and <laughs> <laughs> unable to do anything about it. And finally we talked and, and we had our daughter back. God is pursuing you and He never stops. So don't say He's not there. Look around. Just ending with the last two points. God will judge and remove unfruitful tenants. As we saw last week, He will only put up with it for so long, for His glory will not be be taken. His name will not be defamed. 
And in verse 9, what will the owners of the vineyard do? Owner of the vineyard, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. It's done. This is a reference. He's saying this with the disciples right here who are about to be the leaders of the church. And he's removing that leadership from the Sanhedrin who were the religious leaders of Israel. He said, you were false. You were only concerned with yourselves. You dictated to people what you should not have been dictating to them without a relationship in Christ. And so these are the men that will lead my church. Wow. Wow. When we don't bear fruit for the Master, we court God's judgment. We court God's judgment. Don't be rebellious relying on God's patience because God is also just and He is righteous and He will uphold His holiness. Finally, letter D there, God will triumph. God will triumph. If we want to build a receptive heart, see the triumph of God. God wins. Putting it no other way, God wins. And look at verse 10 there as he quotes Psalms. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And it's a little bit of a jab here. He's like, don't you know this, this passage? This was the passage they used at Passover every year. This is the passage that the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem would quote on their way in. Don't you know this passage? Have you heard this one before? The stone that the builders rejected, and they're, they're standing where Solomon's temple was, and the, the stone that the builders rejected, speaking of Jesus Christ, has become the headstone or the cornerstone, the most important stone in the building that all else is based on and built on. And this was God's plan from the beginning. See, God knew that the religious leaders were going to attack Jesus. He knew that they could not handle being confronted with truth and that they would now try to kill him. And in three days would hang him on a cross. But that is the triumph of God's plan, not the defeat of God's plan. And when we begin to see all events through God's glory and through what He is doing, we begin to build receptive hearts that are humble to the Master and say, whatever you want. That will say, you know, I I broke the avocado tree. Lord, help me. Especially now. (laughs) (laughs) I urge us to have receptive hearts rather than self-absorbed hearts. Hearts that are open to correction. Hearts that are open to what God is doing. Hearts that are not demanding. Hearts that bear fruit. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, thank You for Your Word, for the challenge of Your Word. May You confront self-centeredness in us. May You stamp it out. Lord, I pray that You would bring events into our lives, every one of us this week, that confronts directly areas of self-centeredness, that challenges us 
in areas where we have held on to authority and control and have not been receptive to you. Lord, challenge us this week. Build in us receptive hearts that see things through your eyes. Build in us hearts that understand the depth of your pursuit and respond to that rather than trying to live Christianity on our own with our own set of rules. Thank you, God, for your grace and your love. I pray we live in light of that. In Jesus' name.